And let's turn to Philippians 3. Philippians 3. And I want to read to you uh, verses 3 through 10. Philippians 3, 3 through 10. For we are the circumcision, which worship God in the Spirit, and rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is of the law, or which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency, the excellency, if you please, of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ, and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. And now here is our text for tonight, verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering so far. Now, this passage might well be called Paul's personal profit and loss statement. <clears throat> it reveals a great change in the assessment of values in Paul's life. What he valued as important and what he did not. Now, he had thought he was very well off spiritually. The trouble was he did what so many people do. He confused what is spiritual with what is religious. He was well off religiously. That was all. Now he gives us a list of his former assets. Let's look at them more carefully. We've just read them. Beginning at verse 5. Circumcised the eighth day. No carelessness here. His father didn't say it's raining so hard today and I've already got a cold. I think I'll make it tomorrow. No, no. On the precise day prescribed by the law of Moses, he took little Saul to the synagogue and Saul, by the right of circumcision, was declared to be a son of Abraham. Of the stock, the stock of Israel. You could take his genealogy back as far as any Jew. Not a proselyte among them. He was of the stock of Israel. Of the tribe of Benjamin, that noble, noble little tribe. The tiniest of them all that stood with Judah when the ten tribes revolted against Jerusalem and Judea. Only Benjamin said, we take our stand 
with Jerusalem and with the king there that God has appointed. Uh, and Hebrew of the Hebrews. Brother Jordan this afternoon reminded us of 2 Corinthians 11 and the 22nd verse where Paul challenges the uh, Jewish people of his day and especially the leaders and says, uh, are they uh, Hebrews? So am I. But in this verse, you see the intensity of his position as a Hebrew. And Hebrew of the Hebrews. As touching the law, a Pharisee. Remember how when he stood before the throngs at Jerusalem in Acts 23, when he saw that the Sanhedrin was divided, he cried out and said, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Later on, when he stood before Agrippa, he said, All the Jews know me. They were there witnessing against him. He said, They all know me that from the beginning. I lived the, uh, the straightest, the most straightest. It's a beautiful double adjective. The most straightest sect of our religion. I lived a Pharisee. So he's not merely a Pharisee and the son of a Pharisee, but he was a very, very strict one. The most strictest, if you please, of them all. Let's go on here. The uh, sixth verse. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Beloved, this is a great argument of Paul's as to what was formerly an asset to him. It was not the high priest, it was not the Sanhedrin that really did something about all those, quote, blasphemers in their midst. They were against it. They talked about it. Christ had been crucified, and I think that scared them. Now they were more quiet, but Saul says, no, no, we've got to stamp out this thing. And the law of Moses says it must be by death. Let's go to the book of Acts and look at just a few uh, verses and see how deep his zeal was in preserving what he called later the religion of the Jews. Acts 8, the third verse. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church entering into every house and hailing, dragging men and women, committed them to prison. The ninth chapter, the first two verses, Saul yet breathing out, threatening and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and said, give me papers, give me authority to go to these other cities. And in this case, it's Damascus. He's on his way to Damascus. Yet, breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. The 22nd chapter and the 4th and 5th verses. Here he says, before the multitude at Jerusalem, I persecuted this way unto the death, binding and delivering into prisons, and here it is again, both men and women. 
as also the high priest doth bear me witness, and all the estate of the elders, from whom also I received letters unto the brethren, and went to Damascus, to bring them that were there bound to Jerusalem, for to be punished. The 19th verse. And I said, Lord, here the Lord has been speaking to Saul or Paul, and Paul gives him an argument. He wants to begin at Jerusalem, as the twelve had. But the Lord said, I said, I beg your pardon, I said, Lord, they know that I imprisoned and beat in every synagogue those who called on thy name. The uh, 26th chapter, please, and the 10th verse. Which thing, he says, I thought I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, which thing also I did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints did I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I gave my vote against them. You remember what he wrote to the Galatians. You know how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and laid it waste. Now his hands, if you please, dripped with the blood of saints. But beloved, he was something better than those who have opposed Christ in our day. He was utterly sincere. He believed that according to the law of Moses, these blasphemers should be put to death. And he was out to rid his nation of them. So he says in Acts the 23rd chapter and the, uh, the uh, first verse, I beg your pardon, in, uh, in uh, the, I've forgotten now. No, 26th chapter, I have it. 26th chapter, right before the one that we read, he says, uh, I thought verily that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. He thought he should. He thought it was his responsibility to do it. And when he looked at the Sanhedrin, the 23rd chapter in the first verse, it says he looked them intently. He looked them intently in the face and said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God unto this day. I was what you, I was once what you are, and I was most conscientiously so. Well, go down to six verse uh, further concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. I'm sure he didn't mean that he of all men uh, alone never sinned, not at all. It's as we read about Zacharias and Elizabeth in the first chapter of Luke in the sixth verse. They walked in all the ordinances of the Lord blameless. When Paul knowingly uh, committed some infraction against the law, he was sure to bring the sacrifice that was required. And he kept all those sacrifices and ordinances until one amazing day. Did you hear what the girls were playing? Thank you, ladies. The girls were playing just before getting to know him. Getting to know him. That happened to Paul on the road to Damascus. Oh, this list, there it is all nicely in order. Uh, every bit of it put down very, very carefully. All his assets. 
And listen, they are not merely impressive, they are imposing. When you think of the character, the background, the position of this great man in Israel, this is very imposing. And it was to him. He thought, oh, I've got just about everything I need. Can't go much beyond this. I've been very careful, very careful about the Jews' religion until one day he got to know, to know the Lord Jesus Christ. From his glory, the Lord looked down upon this poor, guilty, religious man on his way, breathing threatenings and slaughter to kill more of the followers of the Lord Jesus. And the Lord Jesus himself arrests him. As uh, Major Andre said in that great poem of his, Almighty love, arrest that man. And that's what happened with Saul of Tarsus. He was arrested. A light, he says, above the brightness of the noonday sun. And beloved, in Palestine, that is something. He was blinded immediately. Uh, in Palestine, they tell me, when you take your camera, they tell you just as a matter of course, stop your camera down, two full stops. It's so bright. But here Paul was cast down to the ground by a light above the brightness of the sun. Where did all this brightness come from? It was the glory of the ascended Lord that he saw. He says, I heard him. I saw him. And the Lord said, you be a witness of those things that you've seen and heard. He heard and he saw the Lord Jesus Christ. Now in one moment, this pitiless persecutor becomes the docile, yea, the deeply devoted slave of the one he had so bitterly pursued. Now what about all those charges against these blasphemers, uh, those that he considered blasphemer? Oh, now the dreadful thought comes to him. Now all of a sudden he sees it. He should have been championing their cause. He should have been one of them. And he had been putting them to death by the scores, hundreds, thousands, who knows how many. He laid the church of God waste, uh, he says to the Galatians. Now he admits in 1 Timothy 1.13 to 15, he says, I thank God that he empowered or enabled me, putting me into the ministry. He says it in a, in a vein of wonder, putting me into the ministry who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. Well, the Lord forgave Paul for that, of course. But do you know he never forgave himself? How his heart went back to Jerusalem. How he wanted to go there and, oh, to do something, to, to give to those poor people his own testimony. He had been far more bitter against the Christians than they were. Never forgave himself. You heard that also in Brother Jordan's message this afternoon. I'm the least of the apostles. I'm not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But let's look back now at, <coughs> pardon me, at the third chapter of Philippians. All of a sudden, the profits and losses, the debits and the credits, if you please, on his ledger or in his profit and loss statements, 
are exactly reversed. They're exactly reversed. He says in the seventh verse, But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Now the word gain there, you couldn't say this really in English. It wouldn't be proper English. But it's plural. All those gains, all those religious performances and my background and my heritage and my character and my scrupulous observance of the law, and all those gains, now I see them as one great loss, one total liability. Oh, I wonder, are there here tonight Often we get people just from the surrounding area. Are there people here tonight that are religious but unsaved? I know there are many, many thousands of people who they want to please God, so they do what Paul did. They go through all the ordinance of the Lord blameless, you know. They do everything that they think they ought to do according to the law, morally and so on. They're baptized, they're, they're uh, confirmed or whatever else. But they don't know Him. I count all things but loss for Christ. And that's an ongoing thing. It's one thing to get to know him. It's another thing to know him closer and closer every day. And this is an ongoing thing here. Yea, doubtless, he says, And I count all things but loss for the excellency, the excellency of the knowledge of of Christ Jesus, my Lord. Isn't that a beautiful phrase? Ah, uh, Saul thought he was quite a man there, you know. Leading others with him to Damascus. He was going to get these people put to death. The Lord shows him, Paul or Saul, who do you think you are? And in one moment, he says, Lord, Lord, what wilt thou have me? To? You know what Lord means in the original? The highest above all, the one above all. Here he says, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. Ah, my unsaved friend, you know where this starts? It starts with John 17, where the Lord prayed to his father and said to him, This is life eternal. Now listen, unsaved friend, do listen carefully. This is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and know Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Ah, my friend, to know him, that indeed is life eternal. And Paul says, I count everything else lost next to the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. And he didn't only count them lost, look what it says. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, but refuse, but rubbish, that I may win Christ. I want Him. Well, you, you have Him, don't you? We are saved, aren't you now, Paul? Yes, yes. But I want more of Him. I want a closer relationship. And He counted everything else lost in the balance uh, with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now really there is a threefold desire here. First of all, to win Christ in all the experiences of life. 
in anything that might get to seem too important to him. He says, I know better. I want Christ. Christian friend now, do we want Christ in our lives? Do we want him to be everything? Do we really, are we really wrapped up in him to win Christ and be found in him? Not having my own righteousness. Now he doesn't even want that self-righteousness. Now he doesn't even want that thing that he made so much of just a few minutes before. I don't want it. Not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but the righteousness which is of God by faith. I beg your pardon, the wind is blowing my Bible. But that which is through the faith of Christ, the fidelity of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. And number three, that I may know him. It's one thing to get to know him. It's another thing to know him closer and closer, know him more and more intimately. What's that uh, old song they used to sing? Paul learned it. I don't know if he had the English word. I'm sure he didn't. All that I need, he will always be. All that I need, till his face I see. All that I need through eternity, Jesus is all I need. That's all we need, just him, as far as our spiritual lives are concerned. But now let's look at verse 10 more carefully as we get to the point, the thrust of our message tonight. The 10th verse, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. I'm going to leave it there because I believe the next part really goes with verse 11. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. Now, why does he have this order here? I've read even in connection with this verse in commentaries that you can't know the power of his resurrection till you've experienced the fellowship of his suffering. And in a sense, that's true. But Paul is saying the very opposite here. He says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. And it is also true that you can't know the fellowship of his suffering, can't really experience it until you have learned something of the power of his resurrection. And the reason Paul knew so much of the fellowship, the fellowship of Christ's suffering is because he experienced so much of the power of his resurrection. Let's go please to Colossians. Right after Philippians is Colossians. Chapter 1, verse 24. This has been quoted already twice during this uh, conference. And I know it's going to be quoted tomorrow night by Brother Russ. But I'm going to bring something different out of it, I believe, than he was expecting to. His subject is a little different. He says, Paul, speaking of himself, says, Who now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up that which is behind, that which is still lacking or still waits or still remains of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, the church, 
I rejoice at these sufferings in my flesh, filling up the afflictions, that which still remains of the afflictions of Christ. What does he mean by that? Turn to Acts, please, and the second chapter. Acts and chapter 2. And uh, hear the words of Peter. Acts 2, beginning at verse 16. This is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. It shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens, I will pour out in those days of my spirit. And they shall prophesy. And I might add, and they are going to need it. (laughs) They're going to need this outpouring of the spirit. Why? I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before that great and notable, and Joel has it, that great and and terrible day of the Lord come. Now, in other words, Israel had rejected Christ. He was raised from the dead. They still rejected him. He went to heaven. They said they didn't want him. He went to heaven. And the next thing on the program of God was Pentecost and the Great Tribulation. And there is no indication that the latter would not immediately follow the former. In this one passage, and Peter says, this is it. Here it is, the prophecy that you see them, they're beginning to come to pass. And God was pouring out his spirit on his own. But he didn't, and he has not yet poured out his wrath on his enemies. That's the rest of that prophecy. What did he do instead? In infinite grace and love, he extended the until of Psalm 110. Sit thou at my right hand, God says. They don't want you down there. Sit here at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. And I say there is no indication in prophecy that the latter would not immediately follow the former. But he extended the until. He interrupted prophecy in the prophetic program. And he raised up another apostle, the apostle Paul, and sent him forth with a message of grace to his enemies everywhere. I talked to a a very dear friend of ours, a nurse, in Arkansas not long ago over the phone. She said, what are you doing lately? I said, well, I'm writing a commentary on Romans. She said, isn't that the one that Paul wrote? I said, yes, that's one of them. She said, you know, I never did cotton to Paul much. I said, you do now, though, don't you? She said, no, no, no. And uh, so we talked some about that. Of course, with her, it was Peter. She was a Roman Catholic. But I'm writing her a letter now and telling her, you know, I just came across this, where Peter calls Paul our beloved brother and Paul and says you should do what he's teaching, you see. But here's the idea. Here was Saul of Tarsus uh, draining the blood, if you please, from the Pentecostal church, 
from the followers of the Lord Jesus at that time and many of them. He shut up in prison and punished and whipped them in synagogues, compelled them to blaspheme, voted against them when they came up for trial and were put to death. And now God saves him and makes him the apostle of grace. Look please at Acts and the ninth chapter and see what's happening here. Acts chapter 9 and verse 13. Ananias answered, the Lord had sent him Ananias to see Saul after his conversion. And Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all that call on thy name. But you know what the Lord countered with? Look at the 16th verse. I'm going to show him how great things he must suffer for my sake. Saul of Tarsus had been the leader of that great rebellion, and he had caused others to suffer and die. The Lord said, now I'm going to let him suffer and die. I'm going to let him go through the same things that he's been causing them to go through. And so the Lord in grace remained away a royal exile. He did not yet come to judge this world and set up his kingdom and take it by force. Instead, he saved Saul of Tarsus and sent him forth as an ambassador on enemy territory to his enemies everywhere. You know what I think is one of the greatest evidences that we are living in the dispensation of the grace of God? The way the book of Acts closes, and I didn't even write it in the set, the way the book of Acts closes, you've got God's ambassador with nothing but good news, an ambassador of grace and peace to his enemies, and they put him in jail, and God leaves him there. He even is beheaded in jail. The ambassador in bonds himself is the greatest evidence that this is the dispensation of the grace of God. And beloved, he's left us all here in this uh, uh, world at enmity with him. We are ambassadors on enemy territory. And that's why he says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. Beloved, I thought this was a very timely topic for this week. Uh, light afflictions and great glory. Many people are going through really difficult times today. Many are frightened and worried. Well, we're believers. The Lord includes in all of our suffering something very special. As our brother said this afternoon, we, just because we are left here, just because he couldn't immediately take us to heaven, but had to leave us here on enemy territory, we suffer. But oh, thank God, Paul here calls it the fellowship of his suffering. Now let's ask, how do you get to really know the fellowship of his suffering? In uh, the, what is it, at the end of the first of Philippians, Paul says, Unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ. It's a privilege. 
not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which he saw in me and now here to be in me. But how do you, how do you enjoy the fellowship of his suffering? There's only one way. By getting to know him as the resurrected Christ. We cannot have, we cannot enjoy the fellowship of his suffering if we don't know something of the power of his resurrection. Paul says, I want you to know what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in heavenly places far above all. God wants us to experience that power in our lives, beloved. The devil won't attack us much otherwise. Just because we're Christians, oh, he's glad if we're quiet about it and don't witness and don't live for him. Ah, but if we do live for him, if we do begin to experience the power of his resurrection, then he's going to go after us, you may be sure. I don't mean that all Christians who suffer are experiencing the fellowship of his suffering, not by any means. Many Christians suffer because of their own stupidity or their own self-will or their own pride or whatever. Ah, but we can know the fellowship of his suffering in the measure that we know or experience the power of his resurrection. But how do we get to know the power of his resurrection? By feeling strong and saying, I know I can... No, no, no. Back up a little more. Begin the verse, the 10th verse. That I may know him. That's where it all starts. That I may know him. How do you get to know him? Well, you say, I trusted him once as my Savior and I know he, he heard me. I know I was in contact. Yeah, but how do you get to know him better? Know him more closely, more intimately. How do you get to know him more? Well, I know one way. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Shoot, he could have said the word of God. The whole word of God, beloved, is profitable to us, every one of us and especially to help the man of God to be fully equipped to every good work. But here he speaks about the word of Christ, his message from heaven, this message that Paul was so thrilled about, the mystery. That was his great message. Where did he get it? He got it from Christ himself. And the more we are in contact with the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the more that power will be ours. Not only the word of Christ, but the sympathy of Christ we must come to know more. How does that go in, in uh, Hebrews 4 and the 16th verse? We don't have an high priest that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmity. We have one who is deeply touched. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace. I want to stress again what our dear brother Jordan so stressed this afternoon. What has happened to prayer? In the life of believers today, they say prayers at breakfast time or before they go to bed or when they get up in the morning. But how much do we really get on our knees and beseech the Lord, perhaps for some soul or for something that uh, can be for His glory? That is getting to know Him better. To come to the throne of grace. So many people wonder why the Lord doesn't answer their prayers Bishop White answered that well. 
He says, you haven't been coming enough to knock at the door of grace. And so the Lord lets you knock and knock and knock louder and louder and say, Lord, Lord, don't you hear me? Um, He does that to get you a little closer. (laughs) You were too far away and he wants you closer. And so it is, beloved. Ah, may his wonderful word of grace fill us, number one. Number two, may we come often before that blessed throne of grace. He says that he has consecrated this new and living, not the old dead way, uh, uh, a brazen altar and a brazen laver and a golden candlestick and a golden altar and all of that. No, no, this is a new and living way. The blood of Christ, read it in Hebrews 9. The blood of Christ, a new and living way right into his presence. Ah, what a great, great treasure is ours. No wonder this uh, prophet and law statement was completely reversed. Paul says, all that other stuff, oh, I wish for you, my religious but unsaved friend, that you'd get rid of all your religion. Don't get rid of it in order to, to be saved. No, no, no. But I wish you'd get rid of it because you've seen Christ, because you've come to know Him, because you realize the excellency of knowing Him, to know Him, and the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of His suffering. My dear friends, the skies are darkening about us. There's not much optimism even among our rulers and among the big financiers and so on today. Not much optimism. But we've got something a lot better than optimism, don't we? We have faith. We know Him. And may we be like Paul, as though I've not even gotten to know him yet. I want, I want him. I want him. I want Christ. I want more of him. I want to know him better. I want to get more of his power. I want to get more of the feel of his love for all about me. And so, so, any suffering for Christ will indeed be the fellowship of his suffering. Oh, I pray that all of us here tonight are saved if you're If there's anyone here tonight, even just one, are you sitting there and you know in your heart of hearts you're not saved? You might be religious, but you can't say, I know him. I want to tell you something. I'm only a poor, miserable creature at best, but I do know him. (laughs) You can have all the atheists and infidels uh, tell me that it's not a fact, but I know it. I talk to him again and again. It's my joy and delight. As some of you know, I'm a very poor sleeper. But I thank God for that, I think, a million times over. Because it's a great thing to get up at night and just sit and I take that old book again. And get more of the riches of Christ from it. And love Him and talk to Him and pray for Him. Beloved, that's the only way. And I'm just, like Paul says, uh, and if Paul said, I I haven't gotten there, I'm just started. What about poor little old me? (laughs) Well... May we all, by the grace of God, know him. And if you don't know him yet, this is the night to get to know him. This alone is life eternal. There is no other way to receive life from God than to know, to trust, and to know him and the Lord Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. Thank you, and God bless you. Thank you,
privilege to attend the 12th Annual Bible Conference of BBF. It's a wonderful thing to be a Christian, isn't it? We feel so badly about our brother Johnson. We want to all be in prayer for him today. His injury could be more serious than it first appears. This morning we'd like for you to turn with us to Romans chapter 9, that great controversial chapter, that great controversial section of the great book of Romans, the great letter. We'd like to read, and I think it's necessary that we do, Read the first 24 verses. That's a long scripture reading, and we usually don't do that at this conference, but I think it is quite appropriate at this time and necessary. So we will read the chapter through verse 24 before we make any comments upon it. Beginning at verse 1. I say the truth in Christ, I lie not. My conscience also bearing the witness in the Holy Ghost that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart, for I could wish that myself were accused, uh, accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the services of God, and the promises? Whose are the fathers, and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all God, Blessed forever. Amen. Not as though the word of God had taken none effect, for they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but as in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. For as is the word of promise, for this is the word of promise, at this time will I come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebecca also had conceived by one, even our father Isaac, for the children, being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to the election might stand, not of works, but of him that called. It was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but, but Esau have I hated. What then? What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For as for he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, or him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. For the scriptures saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. Thou wilt say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Nay, but, O man, who art thou that replies against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? What if God willing to show his wrath, 
and to make his power known. He endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had afore prepared unto glory, even us whom he had called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. What a exposition, what an apology, uh, at least an introduction to the apology. Chapters 9 through 11 of Romans record the Apostle Paul's apology concerning God's suspension of Israel's covenants pertaining to the kingdom promises. We must understand that. This is an apology, an explanation. Paul, you must remember, wrote this letter to the Roman saints. And this portion does not pertain or is not first to Israel, but rather it is to the church, the body of Christ, to inform us, the body of Christ, what has happened to Israel's covenants. It is not Israelitish, but rather it was written to the same people to whom he says in chapter 10 there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. So let us not accredit this as an Israelitish portion. It is not. It is written to the saints at Rome. It's information for you and for me. So therefore, Paul wrote to the Roman saints this portion, these three chapters, to inform them of Israel's fall from God's favor. And that as a result of their fall, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Romans 11, 11 through 15. We must understand that there were Jews, even Jewish believers, who protested that God had no right inasmuch as the covenant to Abraham was sealed with an oath, that God had no right to breach that covenant even temporarily. And they protested the Apostle Paul's authority to announce that to the nation and to the nations. This is the problem that caused and occasioned this section of the letter. The covenant is suspended. No, they say. The covenant are the promises which he had made to Israel, the elect nation. God would suspend. Would he break that temporarily even? No, he cannot. Indeed, he must not. But the Apostle Paul said, oh, yes, he has the right to do that. That's the, that's the thrust of these three whole chapters. But to inform them, of course, in chapter 11, which is my subject, and I must go there in my introduction. In chapter 11, he advises them and he instructs them that the casting away of Israel, the suspension of their covenant of hope is not an eternal one. It is not forever. Neither does it cast a shadow upon the individual. But he invites them and glorifies his office in 11.13. And the word glorify or I magnify, we often miss the point. He says, I am the apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my office or I extend it. The magnification means to extend it even back to Israel. That's why his heart rested with them. 
That glorify my office is not to boast about it, but he says, I go beyond the call of duty. And I put an emphasis where it is only my judgment, and I'm allowed that judgment by God to Israel, in order that if by any means I might provoke to jealousy or emulation them that are of my flesh and save some of them. You see, that's the point. So Paul argues with the opposition here. He argues that God is not arbitrary in breaking his relation, or his covenant relation with Israel. But rather that the nation was at fault. And that stubborn, rebellious nation had rebelled against God. And it was their fault. They were responsible for God breaking his relationship with them and suspending the covenant concerning the kingdom. The argument is all together and throughout that God has a right to exercise his sovereign power. It is Paul's argument that God has every right to exercise his sovereign power even as the potter has the power over the clay. That is God's sovereign right. Yet he does not do it arbitrarily. And that's the question. That's the conclusion remark. Uh, conclusion remark or the concluding remark, may I say. So our theme this week, light affliction, great glory, <clears throat> I have been assigned the topical phrase, the riches of his glory, in verse 23. So the riches of his glory is what I'm to uh, enlarge or expound upon. You will understand we are not merely concerned in this verse with the glory of God. We're not concerned about the glory of God merely. But we are concerned here about the riches of his glory, the wealth of it. We see glory has variations, even God's glory. The Apostle Paul writing to the Corinthians, may I turn there for a moment. Get my watch out here because I'm doing this, right? Okay. Turn to 2 Corinthians just for a minute. Just for a moment. 2 Corinthians 3. 2 Corinthians 3, and we'd like to look beginning at verse 7. 2 Corinthians 3, 7. But if the ministration of death, written and graven in stones, was glorious, so the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away. How shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? For if the ministration of condemnation be glory, much more doth the ministration of righteousness exceed or excel that glory. For even that which was made glorious had no glory in this respect by reason of the glory that Excelleth. For if that which is done away was glorious, much more that which remaineth is glorious. The Apostle Paul is comparing the glory that was given at Sinai and pertaining even to the glory cloud and the glorious law, which is God's righteous, holy, 
law good in every respect? Paul says, I am currently sold under sin. <laughs> so the glory of the administration of the Spirit, Paul says, excels the glory of the law. So we see the variations of glory in 1 Peter. 1 Peter and chapter 1. We read a couple of verses there. It's second, second Peter. No wonder I couldn't. No wonder I couldn't find it in first Peter. Second Peter. And we read a couple of verses beginning at verse sixteen. Peter says, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For we received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. You see, God has glory. Then he has that glory that excels. We're concerned this morning with the riches of his excellency. We're concerned with that glory that is great and mighty. As we have been listening to the messages this week and we have learned that suffering precedes glory, we uh, will understand that judgment always precedes grace. That's a principle. Even as affliction precedes glory, so does judgment precede grace. You will understand that Paul is concerned with God's demonstration. This is the point that he makes in the Roman letter. In 1 Peter now, we we understand uh, that uh, the suffering of Christ preceded the glory that was to follow. In verse 10, he says, Of which salvation the prophets, having inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. In chapter 4 of 1 Peter, and we would I can get our reading at verse 16, he says, Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. For the time is come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it begin at us, what shall the end of them that be that what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, or if the righteous through difficulty, through afflictions, all this sufferings, be saved. Where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? 
So therefore, he says, Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. But judgment must begin first with God's people. Whether it be his kingdom people, now we're talking about believers now, or whether it would be the body of Christ. Before grace is realized and finalized, there is the association of affliction with him who is on the glory throne. We are in a world that is at enmity, the enemies of God. So therefore, God often judges his people to purify them, and that's the great argument of Peter, of course. It's the argument of Paul, too. It's a principle. So therefore, in our text, in our text this morning, we have, we have reference to the riches of his glory. Now, due to the unusual and critical context that we have in Romans 9, we believe it is of extreme importance for us to understand the nature and character of God before we undertake to deal with this vital subject. You see, we, Paul says, have the mind of Christ. Of course, I know he's talking about himself and about the apostles. Nevertheless, we have spiritual discernment. We have the spiritual illumination that we might not only be able to interpret the verbal text, but we also have, should have, at least, we should be spiritual enough to have discernment that we can interpret the tenor between the written passages of the Word. So therefore, to understand how God will act, we must understand His character and His nature. We must come to know God before we start to interpret how He will act under certain conditions. So therefore, it is necessary for us to turn back to the Old Testament Scriptures for a moment, turn to Isaiah 28 just for a moment. Isaiah chapter 28, I'm going to read a few verses there. It has to do with Judah in light of God's judgment upon the northern kingdom. God has judged the northern kingdom, Ephraim, or Israel, and he's warning Judah in light of the judgment that has fallen upon Israel, or the northern kingdom. And we read, Beginning at verse 14, Wherefore hear the word of the Lord, ye scornful men that rule this people which is in Jerusalem. Because he hath said, We have made a covenant with death and with hell. Uh, are we in agreement? When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, it shall not come unto us. For we have made lies our refuge, and under falsehood have we hid ourselves. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion, for a foundation stone, a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make haste or be put to shame. Judgment also will I lay to the line and righteousness to the plummet. And the hail shall sweep away the wreckage of lies, and the water shall overflow the hiding place. And your covenant with death shall be annulled. And your agreement with hell shall not stand when the overflowing scourge shall pass through. Then ye shall be trodden down. Speaking of the Syrian Babylonian captivity. Verse 19. 
from the time that it goes forth, it shall take you from morning or far morning by morning, shall it pass over by day and by night, and it shall be a vexation only to uh, understand the report. For the bed is shorter than the man that stretches stretch himself upon it, and the cover, covering narrower than that he can wrap himself in it. And the Lord shall rise up as in Mount Perizim. He shall be wroth as in the valley of Gideon. And he shall do his work, his strange work. And he shall bring to pass his act, his strange act. God's patience, Israel's stubbornness had reached the point as it were in the days of Noah. My spirit shall not always strive with man. So God is going to bring the nations. He's going to bring that Assyrian, that Babylonian company upon Israel. And it was his strange work. It is not God's nature to judge. Judgment is only because God must judge sin. Not because he wants to. See, God is a God that has emotions. Well, we're told back in Genesis that God even repented, and that's a hard text, isn't it? God changed his mind because man changed his position. You see, and so God here has consigned to them judgment. And Isaiah calls it a strange word. It's a strange act. So the strange work and the strange act. Uh, the psalmist in, in Psalm 7 speaks of God being angry with the sinner. He's angry with sin. Yet when we read on, we find he's reluctant to judge it. Peter even tells his constituency, why, he says, one day is a thousand, has a thousand years with the Lord, and a thousand years is one day, but God will judge. He says, for God is not slack concerning his promise. As men call slackness, but is long-suffering to us, we're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Yes, God is not willing. God is long-suffering. And so therefore, we find it is a strange act. And it is by necessity that God judges. Oh, that is proven over and over again, not only to the antediluvians before the flood. Noah preached 120 years. Why? Israel was endured by God. And so we must fix in our minds that from the scriptures, we acquire a knowledge of God's nature and his characteristics. Therefore, we're more able to interpret his word. His word, of course, tells us about his nature and his characteristics. And then we are able to use that. And we must do that when we come to Romans 9, into this controversy. We must do that. Let's turn back there now to our, to our uh, text. I would like to refer back to verse 18. And he says, Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. Now he doesn't tell us the reason that he wills. He doesn't do that, you see. 
You must assume that. And so therefore he says, Thou wilt say unto me, Paul here anticipates the antagonist. He says, Thou wilt then say unto me, Why doth he yet find fault, or who hath resisted his will? Why, if he hath hardened me as the instrument upon which he's going to show judgment, then why does he find fault with the instrument? God has done it. And so they put the charge of the fault to God. They make God the, uh, the, uh, the culprit, you see. But Paul says, oh, no, 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 nay. But, O oh, man, who art thou to reply against the sovereign God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? Does this mean that God reckons man as a lump of clay, an inanimate thing, an in, uh, unrational piece of, piece of creation? Oh, come now. No, he's only showing what God has a right to do with his creature. And then it is interesting. My, it is interesting as we move on. We will, we will notice then, as we look at verse 22, he says, What if God willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory upon the vessels of mercy which he had before, which he had before prepared unto glory. And so God has a work, a prepared work. Before he begins it, in, in the counsels of God, and God had made all preparation to call the church into being. But it is of a necessity that he first judge the nation. Now when I say judge the nation, I'm not saying consign the nation. But to judge the nation, to breach or to suspend, suspend the covenant relation with them and reduce them to the status of the Gentile as far as God's favor is concerned. That is what Paul means when he says the fall of them. He doesn't mean that he's consigned the individual to hell, but rather now he must come to God as the Gentile. Of course, getting ahead of our story, but that is, that, and that's the point. But... You will notice he says in verse 22, what if God? Now we're told by the critics, the textual critics, that we have a hypothetical but in here. And really it's uh, the little word de. And so therefore it is what, but what if? But what if? And when he does this, he brings, brings before us a hypothesis. He brings a hypothetical question and he forms it and introduces it in a, an elliptical clause. The elliptical clause, and it's elliptical inasmuch as the main clause is not stated. He doesn't say really anything. He introduces a thought, he doesn't state it. How can we understand that? Paul often, and he's known for his broken constructions. And here is one of the greatest. And it's a violation of grammar. But Paul exercised his authority. 
And he doesn't state the main clause. You must supply it. And that's where the difficulty comes in. Now, he says, but what if? He doesn't say that God did. But he says, what if God? He says, what if God willing, what if God willing to show or demonstrate his power and to, or to demonstrate his wrath or show his wrath and to demonstrate his power? What if that is the case? And you have said in verse 19, why does he yet find fault? And if he's hardened us, then it's his fault and not ours. But Paul says, but what if? And let's assume for a moment that that is the case. Now, if God willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, so Paul here does never answer the question that he asked. But Paul achieves his objective in the argument by not stating the main clause, but rather forcing the reader to supply the one and only logical conclusion to the question that it is an impossibility, it is contrary to the nature and a contradiction to the nature and character of God to do so. That's the point. Let us see if that isn't the case. So the, uh, the, uh, the hypothetical question, the, the conclusion is, and I'll tell you the conclusion before we analyze it any further. The conclusion is, God could not be desirous and anxious, and our, our word willing means that. It means this is his emotional desire and, and he wants to do it. If that's the case, he is willing to show his wrath Yes, he's desired, and to make his power known, and at the same time, the last, the next clause says, he endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted or conditioned to destruction. Now that's a contradiction. God is now willing and ready, a sovereign God, to judge by showing his wrath and making his judgment power known. But yet he endures much long-suffering the vessels of wrath who have fitted themselves to destruction. The, the, the verb could be in the middle voice, but perhaps it's in the indefinite passive. And that is conditions and self and the environment has affected the individual and he has become right himself for God's destruction and yet God is reluctant to bring that judgment. That's Paul's argument. And so the Jews' protest falls apart. You see, he's not saying that he is considering men to be clay. Or it's like Pharaoh who hardened his own heart and then when he wanted to vacillate, God said, no, go on with it. You've reached the point of no return. You see, it's not that God took a vessel and he fashioned it according to his own predestinated and eternal purpose that he would be a vessel of wrath and God would demonstrate and he's willing to do so. Paul says if he's willing to have done that as you assume that he is, he would have done it long ago. And then the next clause, he says, and that, the Westcott and Hart text omits the conjunction and, and I think rightly so. And the word that is our 
purpose, it introduces a purpose clause in order that. In order that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had before prepared to glory. You see, God, if he's anxious to judge one who is altogether worthy, and in judging them, it frees God from his covenant to that nation that he might open the door of faith to the Gentiles. And yet he's reluctant to do it. In long suffering, he postpones the day of grace and suffers longly with the vessels of wrath that have fitted themselves unto destruction. What a contradiction. But Paul doesn't supply the main cause. He doesn't say anything. He presents it in such a fashion that you and I must supply the main clause. And it is that God possibly couldn't do both. It would be contrary to his character and his nature. You see, he puts them in a corner. And he turns the water hose upon them. And as the old saying, common expression goes, he put the monkey on their back. You see, it's not God's fault that the sinner's going to perdition. It's the sinner's fault. And Paul proves that. Why? Look over in chapter 9, and he says in verse 31, But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained to the law of righteousness. Wherefore, because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at the stumbling stone, for it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, and whosoever believeth on him shall not be put to shame. You see, it is incumbent upon the sinner to respond to God's message. Israel did not. Their obdurate heart, their rebellious nature, although God had called him out from among the nations, in order that he might show that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You see, because God used that nation, because he selected that people in Abraham and gave them the covenants, the promise, and all of the privileges that we find in verses 4 and 5, not God's fault, but man is prone to sin. Our Lord Jesus, old Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered you under my way as a hen does her chicks, but ye would not. Not that you could not. Man is prone to sin. God is long-suffering, dealing with a stubborn and obdurate people. He could not make known the riches of his grace because judgment of that nation had to precede the revelation of the mystery. But he first had to judge and deal with that nation in order to demonstrate that man is incapable of measuring up to the standard and that he's only by his nature worthy of God's judgment. God was willing, he wanted to demonstrate that, not because he was willing and desirous, because it was of a necessity. It was imperative that he do so before he could, what? Reveal and make known the riches of his glory upon the vessels of mercy which he had afore, or before, prepared unto glory. So we... So God endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted for destruction, which goes to show that God did judge them, but he did not judge them arbitrarily. And that judgment is his strange work and his strange act, but sin and sinners learn by none other. That's the point. That's the point. 
In Romans chapter 11, in concluding, we want to look at a few verses. 11.11, he says, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall permanently and forever? God forbid, but rather that through their temporary fall, salvation is come unto the Gentiles and to provoke them to jealousy. You see, although God suspended the covenant, yet God has blessing for the individual Jew. We must understand that. Romans 11 teaches that. He says, now if the fall of them, that is their national covenants and hope and kingdom was suspended. He hasn't consigned it. Now he says, if the fall of them be the riches of the world. And there we have the riches of the wealth. The wealth of the world. And the diminishing of them. Uh, that is the temporary suspension. Not the diminishing in number of people. But the diminishing in time. In other words, there's a time that they're not being blessed nationally. He says, if the diminishing of them be the wealth of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle or a Gentile apostle, I magnify my office. I don't think we yet have understood. I haven't, or I didn't, but I think I do now. The magnification of his office was that he extended it to that people, that abdurate people, yet. Oh, there were some that blasphemed and came under the witness of the Holy Spirit, and therefore God, I'm sure, sealed him. But on the other hand, the national people as a whole had opportunity to enter in to the favor of God under grace. He says, For I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles. Now look at the next verse. He says, If by any means I may provoke to jealousy or emulation them which are of my flesh and might save some of them. That's why Paul's eyes always turn to Israel and to Jerusalem. That is what occasioned his last trip, along with taking the loot or the administration of portions. But yet he had a message for that nation. Not necessarily for the believers in that nation. He had that too. But that nation was a burden to Paul as long as he lived. Turn to Ephesians chapter 7, or chapter 1, please. Ephesians chapter 1. Well, we, we always desecrate when we get into the breach of context, but Paul says in verse 5, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. You see, over in chapter 2, which is, but God who is rich in mercy. We're talking about the riches of his glory. And here he says, God who is rich in mercy. Over here in verse uh, 7 we find the riches of his grace. But God who is rich in mercy because of his great love for which he loved us. Notice the past tense. Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. 
By grace are you saved and hath raised us up together and made us set together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus in order that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding wealth of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. So what Paul is saying in Romans uh, chapter 9 and verse 24 and verse 23, he says, In order that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had before prepared unto glory, even us whom he had called not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. This is what brought the animosity. This is what caused the apostle to have to pin these three chapters to the Roman saints, which was the headquarters of the world, wasn't it? And so therefore we have it in the great Roman letter, which is most universal. But, you know, since we, Gentile and Jew, have been brought into a relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ, who is seated at the right hand of the Father in the glory, and there is our head, down here we members of his body. Now, if he is rejected there, then it is necessary that light affliction must, be, must precede great glory. So, the condition has been brought about by our positional relationship to a rejected Lord by this world. So therefore, do we expect, can we expect to have it uh, so-called good down here? Of course not. We have been hearing in these, in these days and in concluding, I might repeat a verse, uh, comments maybe on a verse in chapter 8 of Romans, which precedes the chapter 9. Paul says at verse 17, he says, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with Him, that we may be glorified together with Him. Now, it is not a prerequisite, and it's not a condition, that suffering brings glory, and many have stated that. But rather, the suffering is a universal necessity since we are aliens in a country that is alienated and at enmity with God. So therefore, all Christians suffer. It is appointed unto us to suffer. We're appointed unto affliction, but not unto wrath. So therefore, uh, it so be that we suffer with him. And it is not an optional thing. We do, and we should, and we better, don't you see? And if we don't, we're negligent if we don't enter into his suffering, as Paul said in Colossians 1.24. So here he says, we suffer with him. Now that does not, that is not a condition for glory but rather a necessity in as much as we are related to the glorious one and our glorious head. Don't you see? So therefore I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Well, we have many scriptures we can turn to, but our time has gone. But let me state this. The riches of his glory is manifested in the saints inasmuch as they're saved by the grace of God and when he brought Israel under judgment God was free from his covenants and he had met every, every condition 
every condition, and even beyond that, in long-suffering, he had tolerated the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and in so doing, he was prolonging the day when the door of faith could be opened to the Gentiles, and he could register and demonstrate the attribute of grace upon the vessels of mercy, which he had before prepared unto glory. May God bless as we consider these things. Brother.